This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Times Red Box Podcast. Nobody respects it more than me. So beautiful. Beautiful people. Beautiful views. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast on the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. There is nothing of interest happening in Westminster at the moment, apart from the sex and the resignations and the secret meetings and... Boris being Boris. So forgetting all that, we're going to look across the Atlantic. It is exactly a year since conventional politics was proved wrong all over again, this time by voters in America. Joining me to cast a critical eye over what's happened in the year since we woke up to President Trump are Times columnist Jenny Russell, who argues Trump is not interested in helping anyone but himself. Sir Christopher Mayer, former British ambassador to the US from 97 to 2003, he says we should finally now stop talking about the special relationship and impressionist Rory Bremner on whether it's possible to satirise the most extraordinary character to inhabit the Oval Office. Before we begin, a quick thank you to everyone who's posted reviews on iTunes recently, to Andrew in Dubai, a meet in Leeds, Justin Bieber of Brent, Alison Barter and Casper3142. Good luck with the A-levels, Kieran Webb. Sorry about all the dog-walking adverts. And a special mention to Marketing Oliver, who says this is a good podcast. You should subscribe and even occasionally listen to it. Let's hope this is one of those occasions. To those of you who have complained about me banning Brexit, don't worry, there's a Brexit special coming next week. Send your questions to redboxatthetimes.co.uk. For those of you who liked me banning Brexit, don't worry, you can just skip that episode. Right then, down to today's business. Let's turn the clock back and remember what happened exactly a year ago. And this is how we covered it on the Red Box podcast. Hello and welcome to this special Red Box podcast on the Times, broadcast live on Facebook. I'm Matt Shirley. It's Wednesday, October the 9th, 2016, the day the world awoke to the news that Donald Trump, Donald Trump has been elected president of the United States of America. Barack Obama has congratulated him and invited the White House uh, on Thursday. President Putin said he hoped to take uh, US relations out of their critical condition. Here in Britain, Theresa May has congratulated Trump, saying she was looking forward to working with him to ensure the security and prosperity of our nations in the years ahead. Jeremy Corbyn said Trump's victory was a rejection of a failed economic consensus. The Archbishop of Canterbury is now praying for the American people. 
with the hope that Mr Trump may be given wisdom, insight and grace. Celebrities, including singer Katy Perry, is threatening a revolution. And Adria Ledsom, and I'm honestly not making this up, greeted the news this morning with a tweet saying, New stats on bathing water quality show our favourite swimming spots are the best on record. Uh, So that's at least something we can be glad of this morning. So, Rory, it's fair to say it's been quite a year. God, that brought back the memories. I remember this time last year, exactly, switching on the television, and there was a strange man with the weird hair, surrounded by his family, his children, making his acceptance speech in a choir in the background, singing, you can't always get what you want. And I thought, my God, John Lewis had done a good Christmas act this year. <laughs> and it's true. And uh, and ever since, you know, I do feel, looking back, for, for months I just thought this is just some really bad mistaken identity movie. And I would keep even keep rewinding it, you know, to get to a happy ending. Um, but it, it sort of goes on and on. I mean, I, I, I kind of feel it's like Trump is a bit of a box set. Uh, there were three box sets, Trump, Brexit and Corbyn. And I don't want to watch the whole thing. I just want to know how it ends. Because Melania, of course, uh, she um, she says she wants him to be the next Kennedy. So um, oh, maybe she's thinking about a happy ending too. <laughs> too soon? I don't know. <laughs> right, let's get down to business with Jenny Russell and what motivates the US president. Trump's a much better strategist than we give him credit for. His administration looks a mess because he doesn't understand how government works and he doesn't care. He's not wondering how can I be a good president, he's wondering how can the presidency be good for me. So Jenny, this is an interesting question. Is he a guy who just got lucky or is he a brilliant political genius? You seem to be coming down on the latter. Well, he's brilliant political genius in his own terms. I think the mistake that we make is that we keep on judging him on ours. We, he gets into office and we think, is he going to keep his promises and can he deliver on the economics and why can't he get Congress behind him? And Trump doesn't care about that. He got into power because he knew how to play his audiences. He'd practised that, being a reality TV star, and he knew how to, as he put it, suck all the oxygen out of the media coverage. And he appealed to a base who felt that they hadn't been heard for many years, and they were dismissed and ignored. He said to them, I respect you, I admire you, I'm a self-made man, and look at me, and I'm reflecting back to you what you could be, and we're all outsiders together. And once in office, he's gone on with exactly the same priorities that he had all his life, which is, how can I get richer? How can I become more famous? And how do I keep my support? And he's keeping his support brilliantly, because he's appealing to all the cultural... Um, ideas that he put in front of his base. Basically, you're being left behind, I'm on your side, I'm going to make your lives better again. And to what extent do you think it began with him just saying what he thought, which luckily for him chimed with uh, part of the electorate in America? Or did he change what he was saying to try and win over that support? Did he, was it just that he, he ended up inadvertently being the, the man who caught the public mood? Well, it probably was inadvertent because I'm sure he didn't do any focus groups. But the, the thing is, <laughs> Trump is, you know, a disgruntled man who feels he's been not res- respected sufficiently by the world. He's been left outside by the New York society whose admiration he's always craved. He feels like the uncultured guy from the Bronx. He resents the elites. He thinks that no one's respected him sufficiently. He's clearly got at the very least, strong white nationalist tendencies. And he thinks the world has been unfair to America and that um, good white American men like himself ought to be seen as a great 
deal more important than they are, and that resonates. He did sort of rather say it himself the other day, didn't he? When because uh, they were saying there aren't enough nominees for the new positions in the State Department, and he said, <laughs> he said, you know, I gotta say, the only one that matters is me. <laughs> that's I'm not, the that's only one. Up. I'm the only one that matters. That sums up his presidency. Absolutely, yeah. it's, it's almost like Louis the Fourteenth, isn't it? So, L'état c'est moi. Yeah. <laughs> I don't speak French, but I speak Slovenian. And that's exactly what's so curious about watching what's going on there. That so clearly this is a Tudor court, and people are basically waiting around nervously afraid of speaking out of line in case they get their heads chopped off and all power emanates from one man and he can change his mind in an instant Christopher. I, I, I entirely agree with Jenny that he's operating in a political on a political template that there's no resemblance to the one that we've been used to ever since the Second World War however the interesting thing in all of this is if perchance Bob Muller the special prosecutor starts to get really close to him on the Russia connection and he, Trump, does what Nixon did in 73 and fires Muller as Nixon fired Archibald Cox. Uh, the interesting thing is that back then, the checks and balances came into play. Good, solid Republican senators stood up and we said, we won't put up with this. And in the end, it became either impeachment um, or retirement. And as we know, Nixon went into retirement. What I think is really interesting about the Trump phenomenon is although he's been operating wholly outside the traditional political framework, come the day that he fires Muller, the checks and balances will no longer be there because he has so intimidated the Republican Party or, from a Republican point of view, presents the only way to get the tax cuts that they crave and the dismantling of the whole Obama administration. And that it, he, in a curious great curve, will return to but, traditional politics and destroy it. Is it. It's like normal rules don't apply. I mean, normally when people resign or people are in trouble, they say, I take responsibility. But here's a man who doesn't really understand the concept <laughs> of taking responsibility. But extraordinary, if you are that person who has no concept of taking responsibility, it's extraordinarily liberating because you can do what you like and you can bend the truth, you can bend accountability. All that is extraordinary. So it makes it slightly difficult to get a handle on him and maybe that's part of the problem. And that's why uh, all our forecasts and predictions have turned out to be wrong because we've forever said it cannot be possible that he can survive that or it can't be possible that he will achieve that. That is because we are not thinking in the Trump universe. I actually think he probably does understand responsibility, but he doesn't care. And once you you cross that threshold, it's a bit like in a smaller way we saw it with Jeremy Corbyn in this country. Once he didn't care that half of his shadow cabinet resigned, under normal rules, one person resigning is enough. But once you you refuse to obey that rule, it doesn't matter. As many as You can end up with so many people resigning you can't fill all the jobs, and it doesn't matter, you just got to carry what on. he does care about it is if you're rude about him. Yes. Or you take a, take a crack at him, and then, that, and then you get the sort of Twitter diarrhoea. Yes, we see, that's, I think that's, that's the chink in his armour, as it were, is the vanity, the huge vanity. And I think maybe one of the ways to sort of come back at him is to use that vanity against him, so he starts to boast about himself. You know, I want to say... Straight away, I've got the lowest approval rating of any <laughs> president. It's now 37%, 59% disapproved. That's a net negative of 22. I don't think anyone, I don't think even Truman got close. <laughs> I think he was negative, but not that well. We had the fastest resignation in American history, Mike Flynn. I think it was about 24 days. And uh, we've seen 14 people go. 
These are records, Matt. These are records. <laughs> and records count. So this is because this is the only language, in a sense, he understands. Just as they, apparently, they give him briefing documents which mention his name as many times as possible because the only way you can keep his attention to what he's reading is by putting himself in it. So I think if the criticism is, is directed very much at him, well, where else would you direct it? I think eventually it will find a way through because he has a very thin skin. And um, and presumably your your point, Christopher, about Republicans sticking by his side, they will only do that up until the point they think that he might be affecting their own election well, chances. Well, that is where conventional politics may, may, may click in again. We just, we just don't know because when the midterm prospects start giving some really seriously reliable polling, and if the polling is horrible for those who are up for re-election uh, in the autumn of next year then I think you may see a, a bit of an earthquake in the Republican Party. But until then, he's the best means of getting the tax cuts and the dismantling of the Obama state. Jenny? I think the truly petrifying thing about the whole Trump phenomenon is discovering that there is no moral fibre in the Republican Party. I grew up in an era when you thought that even if you disagreed with Republicans, then they had a deep moral sense and you might disagree with some of their fundamental ideas if you lent as I would have done Democrat, but that they had a coherent moral universe. And now it turns out, as long as we get richer, we don't really, and as long as um, a little subsection of the population who support us get richer, we really don't care what, what else we do. And it's been watching people absolutely refusing to stand up to Trump in any way, which has been made much easier for these Republicans by the fact that the American political system has been so gerrymandered that most Republicans only have to worry about how does their base regard them? Because the constituency boundaries have been drawn so tightly that they don't have to worry about what's good for the population. They just have to worry about will the hardliners and 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 the base of the Republicans support me. There was a sort of Republican tradition, there has been, wasn't it, of, of, of appointing slightly maverick, rather strange, eccentric um, people like Reagan, of course, Ronald Reagan and, and, and George W. Bush. Um, and I suppose they, they tried to get Mitt Romney in, but he, he's Mormon, um, so they were one letter out. Um, <laughs> so that didn't work. But, uh, you know, Trump, he just takes it to another level, doesn't he? And what, one of the things that um, it struck me looking, as well as looking at his approval ratings, but there was some polling, I think, in the Washington Post and ABC, who looked at if the election was rerun now, Trump, Clinton. Trump wins again. Did the, I mean, partly, I think, it's probably Hillary Clinton's sort of woe is me tour hasn't endeared herself to anyone. It's made it worse for her. But also, the, the, the Democrats don't appear to have got their act up, up against, I mean, they've got quite a lot to go at, but they don't appear to have got their act together. It's really striking that only 6% of Trump voters regret their vote. And I think the reason for that is that he appeals to people on an emotional basis. He makes them feel great about themselves. His supporters feel proud to be who they are. Now, against that, if you're the Democrats and you're coming in with a few feeble announcements about how you're going to raise wages slightly, but you're still harping on about how you're going to close down all the coal mines, that just doesn't doesn't cut it. You're not playing on the same playing field and you're not appealing to people in the same way until the Democrats come up with some message that says to people, we care about who you are, not just about what might be in your pay packet. I think they're going to go on losing. I think rather like Trump, I don't think the base, I don't think they care. I really yeah. don't think they care. And, and no matter what Trump says, we're almost in this era, which is extraordinary, that I think um, they almost they don't care whether he's he's lying all the time or whatever, and it's it's almost in an age where we prefer the colourful and extravagant lie to the rather boring and elitist truth that you might think uh, was attached to Hillary Clinton. I think the answer to and again, Jenny's put her finger right on the spot there. 
um, the answer to the Democratic Party's dilemma. It sh I mean, Trump should be an easy target for Democrats. <laughs> but for some reason or, or other, and it's not just Hillary Clinton, it eludes them uh, at the moment. Come the day when they find the messenger for the kind of message that you have just described, I think Trump is toast. Uh, because we talk about the base being immovable. It isn't an immovable base, but it's actually quite a small base. And, and the key to Trump's victory was, A, the weirdness of the Electoral College, which means he didn't win the popular vote, but he became president, plus the fact that there were a number of people, hundreds of thousands of people, maybe millions, I don't know, I haven't counted, who uh, latched on to the hardcore angries who are immovably pro-Trump, and they're the people who could be peeled away. And they're the ones that, in all elections that, you know, it's the people who could be persuaded one way or the other who should be going at. Yeah, all, yeah, all yeah. the Bernie Sanders people ought to be peelable, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, we've got to find a candidate who can do that. But there's not a Republican. I mean, there's, I suppose, McCain has tried and Flack and some of these other senators. But that's, I mean, that's Steve Bannon's job now, isn't it, is to shut them down. Yeah. Yeah, well, of course, it's typical that... Uh, Two of them are about to retire from the Senate, so they didn't give a sh one way or the other, and poor old John McCain is probably dying. But there is no live senator with a prospect of re-election who's actually stood up and said the same things as Corker and Flake and, yep. and McCain. Well, let's move on then and, and, and examine, what, as, we, as we have to in an entirely um, self-centred uh, British way, what does this all mean for us? This is Christopher May. The special relationship is a British mirage. Trump presidency gives us an opportunity to expunge from the UK-US diplomatic lexicon a phrase that neither reflects reality nor serves the British interest. The only time I've heard the special relationship mentioned in Washington, D.C., on the two occasions when I was posted there, it was used as a stick with which to beat my head in the sense that if you don't agree with us on this... Uh, you don't care about the special relationship. I can't do your accent. You don't care about the special relationship. <laughs> That's a pretty good start. Or the special relationship is going to suffer. We'll make sure it suffers unless you give in to our position. And I once went to see Colin Powell uh, to talk about the first visit to Washington of uh, Jack Straw. Such a name dropper. <laughs> I'm enjoying memory. it. What do you mean, Jack Keep Straw? Keep going. <laughs> Jack Straw. Yes, yes. But Jack Straw, uh, blessed memory. And Powell showed me his little speech. Well, welcome. And you know, it was the usual anodyne stuff. And somebody had scrawled on the big black <laughs> felt tip pen on the top of the page, don't forget the special relationship. And I said to Colin, I said, why is that? Why is that being written there? And he says, well, we know you Brits will go ape if I don't mention the special <laughs> relationship. And it's such a toe-curling, humiliating moment. It's like, Gordon Brown's smile when Obama finally <laughs> said special relationship. Maybe you misread the punctuation. It actually said, don't, full stop, forget the special relationship. <laughs> <laughs> yes. so that you, would have been better in some ways, you know. So, so you would say, even in your time, it, it was only really a, something that could be just, just almost a, a term that could be used. Well, I mean, I don't want to say that we don't have a close relationship with the United States, all kinds of areas where we have a very intimate relationship. But the notion of a special relationship which ignores the rules uh, of international relationships, the only nation that has that with uh, the United States is Israel, because Israel has the capacity to influence domestic politics of the United States. Nobody else does except the Irish from time to time for weird reasons, historical reasons. 
So I wanted to get it out of young diplomats' minds that they could walk into a Washington office and say, here I am, the physical embodiment of the special relationship, and you will give me the following things in this trade negotiation, blah, 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 blah. That kind of thing is just, just doesn't work. So what you're arguing is that, is that basically just a, the use of it obscured some horrible realities. But, in, but the realities what, don't have to be horrible. What's the point? No, but in this case, you know, we, we were not special and America didn't think we were special. And as you've just made clear, we were never going to get any special treatment. But what was the point of the phrase? To whom was it meant to appeal then? The British public? The media have a lot to answer for, yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, they often because, do. Because, oh, no, no, it's very rare. <laughs> this, I, I'm sorry to make a heretical no, no, point. No, we, no, we, we don't feel responsible for the whole of the media, Matt and me. No, no. But I mean, the thing is, if, if ever there was the tiniest burp in the British-American relationship, you know, something not quite right, immediately a newspaper, I mentioned nobody in particular, would have a headline, Wither the Special Relationship. Now, is this the end of civilization as we know it? And is the relationship going to go? And, and part of the problem is that in public and through the media, our benchmark for the health of the relationship has been whether it is special or not. And that is the wrong benchmark. If you look historically at moments of special, you could possibly say Macmillan and, and uh, JFK, you know, say Blair and Clinton. Mm. You could well, say Blair Thatcher, and Bush. Thatcher and Reagan. Blair, well, you know, it's, yes, Blair and Bush, but it, it worked precisely in the reverse way, with, which I was talking. We about. had to do what they wanted under Blair and Bush. Yes, I think that was the irony of the whole thing because I think uh, I think Tony Blair felt that he could be just as as Clinton was sort of slightly advising the young Tony Blair. I think he felt that he could sort of exert influence on Bush, and and he would be the bridge between America and Europe, and and he was in the sense that. Uh, George Bush walked all over him. Anyway, that, that was a double delusion that the Europeans would accept Tony Blair as the bridge, and secondly, that George Bush would accept um, mentoring from Tony Blair. Do you think, Christopher, that this message has got through to young diplomats now? Do they have a, 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 a very important clear sightedness? Now about their relationship. Well, with I'm America. so old now; I don't have much contact with young young diplomats. Well, no one I, comes to you for wise advice. But, but they are realistic. The people who are not realistic are the politicians. Well, I was going to say that. Uh, Did you find you were trying to persuade Tony Blair and other people in his administration that there was no such thing as a special relationship? I never said that because it was like farting in church. I couldn't, couldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I simply couldn't do that. But what I did say from time to time was. Look, this is one-way traffic. You know, we've just sent the Royal Marines to Afghanistan and they've now slapped tariffs on imports of certain types of British steel. This is not right. There have been two sort of quite big blows recently in the last sort of 18 months, I suppose. One was Obama, when Obama annoyed the Brexit part of Britain by saying, you know, you're going to go to the back of the queue. That was one. And so I think that, that really annoyed the Brexiteers. And for the Remainers, of course, the Bombardier deal has yeah. now that for, for the other side if you like the other side of the of the brexit divide the news that they're going to slap 200 percent tariffs on uh, on goods that's spelled right. the end of that special relationship that's right. do you think the politics po- politicians now are still deluded christopher I do mean, you think I, I, that may doesn't understand how brutally she's like to yeah, be treated you, by you, trump what did you make of theresa may rushing over to the white house and holding in his principle hand? He actually had had no objection to it at all. It all depended on what message she gave him. Mm. And if she said to him, you bloody well better you know, subscribe to Article 5 of the NATO Treaty and, and, and give up your protectionism 
and there was other, other stuff that she threw into the pot as well. I didn't have a problem with that. And the hand-holding, I never thought was hand-holding. I thought genuinely Donald Trump has a problem with slopes. I was told he had, there's, a, there's an elaborate <laughs> Greek that. word for this. Yes, there is. There's a fear of steps. Fear of slopes yeah, and yeah. steps. And I think he has that. And you see it with Melania. And they're coming down the steps. I think actually she's trying to push them down. <laughs> actually, actually, I, I just held her hand to stop it from running away. <laughs> so that's that's what that is. So I didn't, I didn't have a problem in principle with that. But if anyone thinks that negotiating a trade agreement with the Americans is going to be easy, well, that's the other thing is that in the current climate, you know, this the the status or the state of our relationship with America isn't just. You know the quality of the gifts that Gordon Brown exchanges with Barack Obama on a visit. It, it depends. You know, it's going to decide the state of our economy, Jenny. And and th- there's an awful lot of Brexiteers who are still of the mindset that Christopher worries about. Well, they ought to listen to first of all Trump's record, which is always find out the other guy's weaknesses and then ruthlessly exploit them. That's the and he's make America great again, and America's going to come first, not us. Secondly, um, his trade secretary the other day said that. Britain had better be jolly careful because basically the terms of any trade agreement with the US must be that Britain must go with American rules, i.e. admitting chlorinated chicken, and not European ones, which say that you have to have a much more hygienic system from top to bottom. We used to call it coronation chicken, didn't we? (laughs) Coronation chicken. That's a great phrase. Back to the 50s in many ways. Michael Michael Goff has already ruled out chlorinated chicken, I I think. Anyway... um, But we'll you have know, no trade deal with the United States. Well, this I is the thing. Well, do we need one? Well, this is the thing about Liam Fox has been over yeah. there, but, but completely unprepared. I think we sent something like 77 people. There may even have been 27. I think it was 77 people over in our delegation and found hundreds of American trade negotiators <laughs> on the other side of the table who thought, you know, where, where are the others? <laughs> yes. Well, we were lucky we had 77 because wasn't it right that only one actually well, had you trade experience? Done it before. The rest of sort of apprenticeships. It's not, it's not rocket science. It's not rocket science. Negotiating trade deals are not rocket science. It's not as if you, you, know, you have <laughs> that's to... That's North Korea. <laughs> well, we could hire some North Korean trade negotiators, but, I mean, you know, it's not that difficult. But there's a... If you, the connecting rod between the president making encouraging noises about a trade deal and actually sitting on the other side of the table from 777 American trade negotiators who are actually, by profession, litigation lawyers... And they're going to grab you by the whatnots and squeeze as hard as they can. And you've just got to go back and squeeze them back. And in the end, we'll get a deal. But do we need one? But they're our largest yeah. export market. And we have a, we have a trade. So stuff. many it's mental images. Out there, so many it? mental images. Just Sorry. before we move on, Donald Trump's state visit, not quite state visit. What a state visit. Do we think that's imminent? Should it be? Do we just get it over and done with, Jenny? Well, I'm hoping there are going to be mass demonstrations <laughs> and that he, he is, as Rory says, going to be absolutely mortified by discovering quite how unpopular he is because, you know, the one thing about him is that he wants to be admired, respected and loved. Here he isn't. I'm so, I, see, I think he should come over, but we, but we should take the piss. So, you know, Air Force One will arrive, we make him stack over Stansted <laughs> for two hours. <laughs> make him land at Luke, La- or Gatwick, and yeah. then he can get on a, a train, Southern Rail, yeah. uh, so that'll stop at every state. Uh, get to East Croydon, a replacement bus service. Um, by the time he gets to London, there's a tube strike, he'll have to walk to Buckingham Palace, where the Queen will greet him, as Ross Noble said, in a burqa. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, that would, that would be great. I want to see Hadrian Swall, by the way. He was a great, wonderful man. I, I, I knew him very well. And you don't get many Mexicans in Scotland, Matt, let me tell you. Christopher, state, state visits, are they, are they a nightmare for... Yeah, I mean, the last time he had a highly 
demonstrated state visit by an American president was George W. Bush and was it 2003, just after the start of the Iraq war, and the whole of London had to be shut down virtually. But George W. had a different kind of temperament. He, he knew he was not, he may have many weaknesses, but he's not a narcissist. And he knew the demonstrations were coming, and he just, just brushed them off. I think we should not have a state visit, because I think there will be serious demonstrations, and we actually do have some hard interests in the relationship with the United States. And if Trump is humiliated very, very publicly, we'll never hear the end of it. We'll yeah. be em enemy number one. Can, can his visit be postponed altogether, do you think? Yeah, there's a rumour that the new American embassy down in Nine Elms is going to be officially opened early next year. And there's some kind of weird room that you're going to come over and do it. For a non-state visit, just a quick token you visit come to Britain over a working, without demonstrations. Visit. So long as he stays south of the river. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Well, let's move on then um, to our final talking point, uh, because, Rory, you want to talk about whether or not you can hurt him through satire. In a post-truth age, Trump is almost post-satire. Normal rules don't apply, as he's more than capable of satirising himself. In playing him as a fool and a clown, there's a danger that we give him a licence to operate beyond normal accountability. And this is somebody who early in his presidency, he said, we've now seen the most successful 13 weeks in the history of the United States presidency. He'd been president for 11 weeks <laughs> at, at that point. And you know, where do you start? People always say, oh, you couldn't make it up. He does. He makes it up all the time. Yeah. It was Tom Lehrer, the brilliant satirist, who said that uh, back in 1974, I think, that satire was obsolete when they gave the Nobel Peace Prize to Henry Kissinger. Uh, and now we're in that era. We had Tony Blair as Middle East Peace Envoy, you know, a job he gave up last year, didn't he, Christopher? Oh, yeah. Uh, mission accomplished. Uh, <laughs> I, was, I, don't, I don't think the Middle East has ever been more peaceful. But, yeah, there you go. Uh, lovely to see you, Christopher, by the way. Uh, great job. Um, so well, we've got that and we've got, we, we, we have Boris. The, 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 uh, you, this is, you can't make this stuff up. Last, uh, this week, he said, three days ago, he said, no, 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 a joke. A joke is a very good way of getting your diplomatic point across, which presumably is why Theresa May appointed him in the first place. And the third of those trilogies, you've got Donald Trump. And, you know, where do you go with a character who's beyond parody? You know, I think we have to find new new ways of getting through to him. That's I, I sometimes call it, you know, fighting fire with facts. And so if you keep hitting him with, with actually the, the reality of his approval rating and all the other things. Um, 
But if we play in too much to this idea that he is a fool and he is a clown, it, it's rather like the Boris thing, where you give him the space to operate and be like, oh, just, well, you know, it's what you come to expect of Donald Trump. The sort of Boris is Boris argument. Exactly, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly that, Boris is Boris, which allows Boris to get away with all sorts of stuff. Uh, and in the case of Trump, you know, if it's Trump, is Trump. Uh, but it's on a, on, a, on a bigger scale. Jenny? Much as I admire most of what Rory says, I'm afraid that I think he's quite wrong to think that one ought to use the kinds of weapons that... Um, Christopher and I might use against Trump, which is facts. I think we should use what Rory is so brilliant at, which is satire and mockery, because that's clearly the only thing that hurts. He brushes off facts. He just states that things are not as they are, and they're completely irrelevant to him, nor do his base seem to mind. The one thing that he does mind, and we know this from his reaction to the way he's portrayed in all those American satirical shows like Saturday Night Live, is that he can't stand it when people laugh at him. And that is the best weapon we've got mm-hmm. against him. Mm-hmm. But I suppose it's what you load the weapon with, that's the thing. Oh. I mean, if you're firing his failures back at him with yes. a satirical and a, a comedy bow attached, that, that was my thing. With Saturday Night Live before the election, they lampooned him every week, you know, made Alec Baldness, you know, a bigger star than he even was when he filmed he'd been in. And there was a sort of slight disbelief the week after the election on Saturday Night Live that that... That hadn't worked. The, the sending oh, him up enough. We were back to what Peter enough. Cook. We were back to what Peter Cook said about about satire uh, doing so much in the 1930s to prevent the rise of Adolf Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're into that territory again, and, and it, you, you think it just doesn't course, do the job. And his base, of course, just hates that. I mean, it, it, it bolsters his support because they say, "Look, here's the liberal elite just mocking us." So, I mean, what I've just said, I, I now totally contradict. It might make Trump very cross, but it also makes his base cross. And actually, what you want to do in America is to find some way of making those people feel not attacked by the Democrats and feel able to shift some of their loyalties and identities. Because in the end, Trump is going to damage those people. He may be good for making them feel great, but he's not going to deliver economically. Their lives are going to get worse. There's a psychological side to this, which is quite interesting. And that's, Firstly, it's difficult for Americans. There's a law, the Goldwater Rule, that you, you may, you'll be aware of, I'm sure. Uh, it's one of the laws of the American Psychiatrists Association. You're not able to publicly diagnose somebody. Um, and this goes back to when Goldwater, they, they asked uh, thousands of American, 1,200 American psychiatrists what their opinion was of Goldwater. And um, they got sort of thousands of replies, and half of them said he was unfit for office, and so they printed that in this, uh, in this magazine, now defunct, called Fact. And uh, he objected, Goldwater, he objected to being called unfit for office. Uh, he said, well, look, they haven't diagnosed me, they haven't examined me personally. And, um, and he won the case. So ever since, uh, out there, there are thousands and thousands of American psychiatrists and psychoanalysts and psych- uh, psychologists who say, do we really need to examine him personally? Because quite clearly, this thing about narcissistic personality disorder... But um, so there is, I mean, he, you know, you look at him and I, as a layman, I can see, you can see the narcissistic personality disorder, you can see the Machiavellian thing, you can see the sociopath, and, and I, I can recognise a certain amount of attention deficit. So there's the four strawberries of the apocalypse right there <laughs> on that machine. But the other thing that fascinates me is, um, you come across the Dunning-Kruger effect? The Dunning-Kruger, this is, some, okay, a Cornell psychologist called uh, Dunning and his research assistant. And they did research into stupidity and this idea that stupid people don't realise they're stupid. Because in order to know that you're stupid, you have to have a certain degree of intelligence. And their way of doing this, they set an exam to, uh, for groups of people uh, in something that they didn't know anything about. Uh, and so then they, so people had to, to write about something they didn't know anything about. And afterwards, he said, well, how did, it go? How did that go? And of course, uh, the, the brighter people said, well, I think that was really bad because I don't know very much about it. 
and the stupid people who, in this case, are characterized as, as, as Donald Trump said, I think I did very well. I think I got nine out of ten. And, uh, and that's, that's how it goes. So I think there's an element of that. He he's, lacks self-awareness. But then, of course, as I said before, if you lack self-awareness, um, then... You're not aware of it. That's the, you know, you know, the you're not aware problem. of it. Christopher, do you think satire works, or c- can it work on somebody like Donald Trump? Yeah, I think satire works in, in this sense. That I think one thing that Trump cannot take, and I think this is a function of his narcissism, is pressure. He actually is not good at taking pressure. Now, he has all kinds of mechanisms to avoid having to be pressurised. When things don't go his way... He apparently, I mean, more and more of this stuff comes out through leakers in the White House. He goes apeshit and lashes out. And, and it's so obvious that, that Twitter is a safety valve for him. It's intense frustration <laughs> that, you know, things, he cannot get people to say what he thinks is right and do what he thinks is right. And the more I think he gets frustrated by the inability, even with a Republican majority in both houses, to get his legislative program through. I mean, nothing's gone, nothing. The drip, drip, drip of mockery adds to that pressure. So I think Rory should cross the Atlantic with that. <laughs> with well, that, I'd with do that. that. You could op- occupy Steve Bannon's office. Actually. I'd love to do that, let me tell you, Christopher. But just to pick up something that you said, I mean, just also um, the, the way in, in which he, he runs the presidency, it is extraordinarily dysfunctional because if he just attaches it all to himself, yeah. it's all about himself. There are, I think I'm right in saying, half the ambassadors haven't been appointed and those who have, have no proper instructions. And right across government, all the way across the American administration, they're scratching their heads wondering what to do because the normal channels uh, of of instruction and policy and strategy, he doesn't have any time for it because he's got no concept. But I think there is method in this madness and it comes from Steve Bannon who has this idea that you have to smash everything and build it up again in the way that you would want it to be. They obviously think uh, in the alt-right and Trump himself that the State Department is totally useless, uh, which is why Rex Tillerson gets a little support um, from from the White House. But the deliberate deconstructing of the state, the polity, the foreign policy, is not just carelessness and lack of attention to detail and narcissism and lunacy and whatever else. I think there is actually, and the lying, there is actually some deliberation there. There is a sort of plan, which is out of all this chaos comes the kind of presidency that he, Trump, wants to have and the kind of president that he wants to be. Well, we, just before we um, wind up, I mean, actually, we talked about this in a, one of the comedy specials we did earlier in the year, but do you, do you like doing impressions of Donald Trump? Is he, is he um, a good person to do? Well, in the sense that he's... Uh, I think any impressionist, you love to find a new target. You like to have the, 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 new, the new voice, as it were. And it is, for all the reasons we've talked about, it's it's interesting trying to... It's a new challenge. Mm-hmm. And with each character that comes up, I mean, you do use the different kind of satire uh, with Tony Blair that you, than you did with John Major. The tools that you use uh, and the tools that you have to sort of find and discover change with each prime minister and president. So in that sense, it's an enjoyable challenge. But I, I think, you know, politically, for the reasons that Christopher's just out- outlined, I think there's something very worrying underneath it. And I think... You know, the way that I always try to operate is to make sense of what's happening and then make nonsense of it. Uh, obviously, when you're starting with nonsense <laughs> for, a, for a start, but it's but but I think underlying it is is something really very difficult and challenging and, yeah, and unsettling and very disturbing. That's the biggest worry. I mean, we come to a pretty pass. 
when whoever translates into English what Kim Jong-un says has a better command of the English language than the President of the United States. And where the sanest person in the administration is a man called Mad Dog Mattis. Right, well, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for this week. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes on your Android device and sign up to my morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box. And if you've got any questions about Brexit you want us to answer next week, just email us redbox at thetimes.co.uk. If you want to see Rory performing uh, live with a couple of live shows this month with Jan Ravens, then go to rorybremner.net. But for now... From Bobby Bremner, Christopher Mayer, Jenny Russell, and me, Matt Cholly. It's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.